I need to read this section more carefully. There were two, there was a lot of words here. <laughs> the title of this episode is going to be, there were a lot of words there. Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto, and I'm joined again by my friend and co-host Matt Fox from Boston University. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing well. We are starting to get to warm weather, and I was actually able to go outside today. And I got to tell you, living in a place where the weather is warm would definitely make me a much happier person. I don't know why I chose to live in a cold weather place. I'm not a cold weather person. Yeah, but do you think you appreciate it as much when you live in a warm weather place? The feeling of getting it to, I'll say, 60 degrees in a cold weather place is so exciting. No. And you don't get that when you live somewhere that's hot. No, I could live without that. I lived for two and a half years in Johannesburg, South Africa, where the weather is fabulous. It does get actually a little chilly in the winter, only because they don't really have much insulation in the homes. And so it, even though it's only 40 degrees, it's 40 degrees inside. But at the same time, no, I loved it. And I would gladly go back there and not deal with cold weather ever again. All right. Well, I think people who live in warm weather places sometimes say that they miss seasons. I could do with like a two season type of of deal. I'm not sure I need the four, especially the brutally October till April kind of winter thing. But yeah, it, it is nice that the sun is shining. There's some birds outside. We're all about bird watching in this house. And so, you know, it's, it's an exciting time of year for us too. Okay. So I have a friend who has one of those bird feeders mm-hmm. that takes a picture of the bird oh. and then uses <laughs> artificial intelligence to identify the bird and my question is what is the point of that when i could just look up birds on the internet and look at pictures of them why is it so exciting to know there was a bird in my yard that i didn't see yeah so that's a pretty hardcore birder bird bird watcher i don't know what their their technique birder birdist. we'll call them birdist. Birdist. <laughs> a birdist Um, Yeah, so so those kinds of folks are like just excited because it's a rare sighting. I think part of the fun is seeing a bird and in real life and trying to figure out what kind it is. And like a lot of things, AI takes that from you and ruins all the fun. And so I'm not into the AI for that purpose, but it is kind of cool that they can identify birds just from a picture like that. Yes, computers are smart. I mean, they are going to ruin our lives. So have you been horrified by all of the chat GPT stuff going on? So I wasn't really following it that closely. Like, I, you know, okay, so, it's, you know, it can write essays. Okay, it can pass tests. Like, I, I, I have been following it casually. But then Miguel Hernan actually came to give a talk. And I think the title was Artificial Intelligence is Fake Intelligence. And he has a couple really interesting examples of how chat GPT can't use logic to make inferences about, you know, data and draw conclusions properly. And so I was pretty reassured by listening to his talk that, okay, they're not actually able to replace our thought processes totally. I think there's amazing applications for prediction and description and surveillance and identifying novel birds that show up in your house. But I'm not sure we're quite the level that I'm actively concerned about it. I would be way more concerned than you are because you're right that at the moment it cannot do that. I'm not convinced that it won't be able to do that, but it doesn't really matter because what it can do is it can pretend that it can identify relationships or it can pretend that it understands things that it actually doesn't understand. So my colleague asked ChatGPT for a critique of my work. And here's what it came up with. It said, one critique that has been leveled against Fox's work is that he has been accused of promoting an overly aggressive approach 
approach to epidemiology, particularly in his advocacy for causal inference methods that seek to identify causal relationships between exposures and outcomes. Some have argued that this approach can lead to overinterpretation of data and a tendency to make causal claims based on observational studies that are not designed to establish causation. Another critique of Fox's work is that he has been accused of downplaying the importance of randomized controlled trials in epidemiology. Some have argued RCTs are the gold standard for establishing causation in epidemiology and that Fox's emphasis on observational studies and causal inference methods may lead to neglect of the importance of RCTs in certain contexts. Okay, it doesn't know. It's not thinking. It doesn't have an opinion. It doesn't actually know what the world is saying about me, but it's able to mimic what it thinks the world is saying about me based on things that it can learn from me. And to me, that's really concerning. Yeah, that's crazy. That, wow. Yeah. What was your reaction when you first heard that? That we're in real trouble. That <laughs> I, I don't know what the future holds. If we have technology that can talk the talk, it doesn't matter what it's actually able to do. It can convince us. It can do things that it it probably can't. I'm worried. Yeah, okay, so that's pretty horrifying. I'll think back to Miguel's talk and I'll just be reassured because I like to, you know, just stay optimistic for now. But somebody told me that it's a really helpful tool when they're writing. Sure. Um, if they want to write an introduction or a paragraph, you know, you get that writer's block, you're staring at your Word document that's totally blank. What, where do I start? Okay, so if you start from a couple sentences that chat GPT as a, as a base for what you're writing, it's a helpful tool for them in doing that. So that's a, that's also a bit weird. And you definitely keep that in mind and remember that when our computer overlords have taken over, uh, think about <laughs> the good things they've also done in addition to taking over the, the world. So, Do you, yeah, do you sure. think that you need to reference ChatGPT as an author, a co-author? So there are some journals who they have specific guidelines now that say you are not allowed to. So who knows? But even if he, he is ChatGPT a man, is, so this chat GPT person, they're contributing. They meet the guidelines for authorship. I don't know. I don't know. It's very confusing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's above our pay grade. But that is not what we're here to talk about, is it? No, not at all. Today, we are here to talk about chapter 22 in Modern Epidemiology, version four, focused on time to event analysis. So as our, our faithful listeners will know, we're still working our way through modern epidemiology. And uh, we're talking about this chapter, which is focused on all things related related to time to event, survival analysis, topics related to censoring and truncation, Cox proportional hazards models, competing risks. It's a dense chapter. I think it's it's really helpful because it talks about some of the nuances of these models that I think are often overlooked. And so it's not a light read as most of these chapters are, but I think it's a particularly important chapter for people that are, are interested in doing this kind of analysis. So if there were a modern epidemiology theme park and there were rides based on the different chapters, what kind of ride would this chapter be? You know, it's like a time-based ride. Would it be a speed ride, like a roller coaster, or would it be the future land type ride, the, the world of tomorrow kind of things at Disneyland? No, no. It's, I think it, it's speed-based. So recently we were at Disney World and Space Mountain is this roller coaster where you're in complete darkness. There's like some stars and stuff, but really you're in complete darkness and you're spinning around and you don't know which way is up and truthfully I hated the ride sorry if anyone really loves it but I hated it because I, I was so disoriented and that's how I feel about time to event analyses a little bit which is that they're really confusing to me and it's easy for me to get spun around and not know which way is up 
Okay, I have to say I'm not a huge fan of Face Mountain because I find it not disorienting enough. Didn't give the thrill. Really? As a kid, I was when we went to Disneyland, I was terrified of it, wouldn't go on it. And then I grew up and grew to love roller coasters, and I find that one be kind of kind of boring. Oh, well, yeah, no, that was like my peak thrill. That was like a 10 on 10 for me in terms of roller coasters. Fair enough. I share your feelings about time to event. It gets confusing pretty quickly. Yeah, it does. And I think there's these relatively simple scenarios that we start out with when we're teaching your favorite kind of line diagrams where we're talking about counting person time and then you want to model it. So you, you need to use a regression model that incorporates time in some way. So sometimes you move to these time to event analyses. And on that level, I'm like, okay, I got it. I can follow. And then you get into these really important and nuanced topics like competing risks, semi-competing risks, and, the, and different methods for that kind of stuff. And I don't think we spend enough time time focused on those really important topics. And so in the end, the fields or the research that I end up seeing sometimes uses time to event in a way that I don't think is an appropriate application for those those models. I would absolutely agree. I think we talk about time as an important thing in epidemiologic research, and we don't really spend enough time on it, given the importance of how we measure it, how we interpret things that are broken up into units of time. And I want to go back because we've had this conversation earlier in the podcast. I don't remember if it was during the modern epi seasons or if it was in the first season, but you and I have talked before about our feelings about whether we would prefer to think in risks or rates. And I remember saying at the time, to me, risks make so much more sense. I can intuitively understand risks in ways that I struggle to interpret rates. But I acknowledge the fact that rates do actually make sense for some of the things that we want to study in epidemiology because risks, first of all, risks change over time, but also because we can't actually follow everybody for a time to an event, even if we had really perfect follow-up on everybody, because A, not everybody experiences the event, and B, competing risks problems means we're not always going to see all the events. So I'm curious whether after reading this chapter, and I know obviously you've read this chapter before in earlier versions of the text that's shaped your thinking, but in terms of reading this version of the chapter, did your thinking on the risk versus rate debate change at all? It didn't. So I'm still team risk. I I still think they're easier to interpret. They're the more relevant quantity in most instances for us to to understand. I'm definitely team risk. However, there's a, a sentence in the textbook right near the beginning where it says something like time to event models or time to event analyses are useful when the timing of the occurrence of the outcome is a central feature or the central feature or something like that. And I sat there reading that sentence for a long time because when is the timing of the event not the central feature? You know, when do we not care about that? I tried to think of it in the reverse because aren't we always concerned about when that outcome is happening or in many cases? And and we might overlook that or choose not to acknowledge that. But it's often something I think we're interested in. And maybe through some simplifying steps, we choose not to focus on that. But I think we're always interested in the timing of the outcome, which makes this chapter really important. 
I would agree with that. I do think that these problems creep in a little bit when we talk about the counterfactual model, because when we mm -hmm. talk about the counterfactual model, we're almost always talking about it in a risk-based context, not a rate-based context. Not that you couldn't, but we tend to think of, did you get the outcome, yes or no, by the end of the follow-up period? Now, leaving out, let's say we're in a world where competing risks is not a problem. But even then, two people could both experience the outcome by the end of the follow-up under exposure and, let's say, yes, and under non-exposure, no. And then we would say the exposure had an effect on the outcome. But you could also have a situation where you get the outcome under both the exposure and non-exposure by, say, five years of follow-up, but the event occurs earlier under exposure than non-exposure. And there are ways to deal with that, obviously, in, in the counterfactual model. But in the typical way we introduce it to students, we don't really deal with that problem. It's sort of a, a binary, it happens or it doesn't. It's not about when it happens. Again, you could solve that by either switching to a sort of a rate-based counterfactual approach or by just changing the timing of the outcome from five years to three years. And that would change whether or not the outcome occurs in one condition versus the other. But it's not the typical way we go about it, or at least not the typical way I go about it when I teach it. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And even as you say it, I hear something that's really important and we simplify it in a way that doesn't let us answer that important question about if two people end up with the outcome, isn't it relevant that one person, it happened in 12 months and the other person, it happened in six years and that's differential by their exposure status? You know, outcome, yes, no, really doesn't help us answer what I think is a really relevant question. Right. And again, that problem can be solved. It can be, yeah. By saying, you know, if, if we look at a 12-year outcome, then they both get the outcome. But if we only look at a five-year outcome, one gets it and one doesn't. So we can change it. And, and obviously, as we say, you know, risks certainly change over time. Age alone is just a, a strong predictor of health over time. And so the longer we look, the more likely people are experiencing negative health-related outcomes. So time is inherently important in what we do. And so I, I don't know, this definitely made me think just because I like risks more, doesn't mean that risks are necessarily the better way to go about our analysis. Yeah, I mean, as you said, we've talked about this before, but there's there's all these issues with rates, you know, non-collapsibility and the like. And so interpreting rates is challenging, but maybe I need to do a better job at, at focusing on that and not taking the easier risk route in some instances, I guess. So I have a question for you about terminology, actually. Okay. The topics that are covered in this chapter, broadly speaking, do you call them topics that are a time to event analyses or survival analysis? Oh, boy. I think I use both. You use both? I probably use them somewhat interchangeably. Yeah. I, yeah. So I typically honestly refer to them as a category as survival analyses, even when the outcome is not mortality, which is really what you're referring to with a survival analysis. Sort of. I mean, I think the term survival can be more general survival without the outcome. Right. So not necessarily survival in the literal sense. So that's how I think I usually use that term. But then the, the book does say that survival analysis is with mortality as the outcome. Yeah. And I actually really like the term time to event. I think it's more clear and I think it's more informative. And so I'm going to try to use time to event rather than survival because I think survival is misleading when you're, you're talking about something like whatever outcome you experience that is not related to mortality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so so this chapter then essentially walks us through time to event analyses and the different issues that come up, the problems that come up, the challenges, and then the approaches like you know, Kaplan-Meier, survival analysis, proportional hazards, viable models, exponential models, things like that. We're not obviously going to go through the formulas here unless you want to show us you can recite the formulas by heart. I know that would be really appealing, but no, let's pass. But conceptually speaking, I think the chapter does a nice job of going through some of the main issues that we have when we try to deal with time to event data in the presence of censoring. Yeah. The chapter then goes through the different kinds of censoring, right? So the idea being here that we can observe people in a study, we can follow them for periods of time, but at some point we may not be able to continue to observe people, whether it's because they drop out of our study or they die or the study ends. The study ends, administrative censoring, or we may also not have been able to follow people because we started in the middle of something, right? So we're interested in the effect of an exposure on an outcome, but there is time from when the exposure occurred until our study started. And so they're truncated. We have censoring in a different way. And so the book goes through right censoring, left censoring or left truncation, and then interval censoring. You want to talk through each one of those? Sure. So right censoring, I think, is the simplest place to start. And probably the one that people are most familiar with or think about most. Right. So so right censoring occurs when most often it's administrative censoring. So your, your study ends at some point and events occur after that time point. But the timing of that event is not observed for the participants in your study. And so we say that is right censored because the event occurred after some point in time that you were collecting data or following those participants. Is that how you would define it? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is you said most often occurs from administrative reasons. I don't know if that's true or not. Presumably, there is a finite amount of time that people get followed when we're doing a prospective study where we're actually you know, actively enrolling people into a study, but data sets that are administrative claims databases, like that's not per se administrative censoring. People stop getting followed when they leave the, the insurance provider or things like that. Right, of course, yeah. And then, of course, you know, even within a study where you are following, people can be right censored because they drop out of your study, they're not interested in participating anymore, whatever, you know, whatever it is. So a lot of different reasons that right censoring could occur. Right. But the concept, regardless of the reason, is that the outcome event occurs at some point after you have stopped following people. Okay. So that's where I want to interrogate that a little because that is what the book says. So the book says, in the absence of censoring, an implicit assumption is the event will eventually occur. Mm -hmm. But that isn't true for most things. For death, right? Obviously, death will occur for everybody. But is it really true that every single person at some point will experience, say, a heart attack? or cancer or whatever it is? I mean, is that a true statement? Is that true? I don't know if it's true. So there's a couple ways that I think about this. I mean, I trust everything that book says as true. So if that's what the book says, then yeah, I think it is true, probably. But I think of it in a couple ways. If you were to follow people for an infinite amount of time in the absence of all other competing risks, I guess... So in the absence of death. Right. Yeah. Then I guess, yes, it's possible that every individual could experience the outcome 
I think that isn't necessarily true, even in this weird world where death doesn't exist. So the other way I think about it is that there's a non-zero probability that the event could occur. Like they're not excluded from having a heart attack. They have a heart. It could get clogged up and result in a heart attack. You know, so so it is possible for them to have a heart attack. Is, is that how a heart attack works? Yeah, the clog. <laughs> That's the formal <laughs> Got it. Got it. <laughs> That's the formal definition of a heart attack. It, it's um, probably worth revisiting the fact that you and I are PhDs, not MDs. Just want to throw that out there. Again. Yeah, just to underscore over there. But yeah, so I think about it in that way that it is theoretically possible for this event to occur in these people if you were to follow them forever without death. Yeah, and then that makes sense to me. I, that isn't how I interpret what's written there, but I think that's a reasonable way to think about it. But I do take issue, I think, with the idea of in the absence of death, because then what world are we living in that there is the absence of death? Well, again, that's when we get into these competing risk problems, right? Because it's death or whatever event you're interested in is, I guess, a competing risk with death. And so you can't experience that if you're experiencing the death outcome. No, I would agree with that. But my limited understanding, and I, I really want to emphasize here, I have limited understanding of competing risk models is competing risk models don't per se say this is what would happen in the absence of death. It acknowledges that death is a finite state at which the event can no longer occur. And we have methods for accounting for that statistically, as opposed to what I think would happen in a time to event model in which you just included a competing event as a censoring event, which is, and this is kind of where we, we go next, which is these models, what they do is effectively say, if you are censored, if I no longer can observe you, I'm going to make the assumption that at some point after I observed you, you have the event. And therefore, I'm going to estimate what would have happened to you if you had remained in the study. And I could eventually observe that outcome based on the people who are still in the study. Yeah. So that's when you're getting into the upweighting, the inverse probability weighting, those, those types of approaches. Yeah, although I, I mean, I think that's the censoring approach isn't per se an inverse probability weighting approach, but it does effectively say we're going to make some assumptions and assume that you are like everybody. When we finish observing, you are like everybody who continues to be observed. I don't know how good an assumption that is to be making, but leave that aside. That's very different, I think, from what competing risk models do. And I think I would encourage people, rather than us trying to say we know the details of competing risk model, encourage people to go back to season one when we talked to Brian Lau about competing risk models. Brian Lau, yeah. And go from there. But okay, so we've got these models and they are set up to make some assumptions and deal with the fact that we don't observe everyone. Would you agree with the statement by effectively assuming that everybody at the point we cease to observe them is effectively like the people that we do observe after that time period? I think that's the assumption that you are making, right? I think so. And so you've got models to deal with the right censoring problem with assumptions. Yes. And everything we do in epidemiology, every model has a set of assumptions. So we want to think carefully about whether or not we believe those assumptions, but we've got a statistical tool to deal with that. Yeah. And so that's the right censoring problem. I, I think there's one more thing I want to mention about that right censoring issue. And I think this is such an important sentence in the book, which is that censoring is not an occurrence that interferes with the event, but interferes with the ability to observe the event. And I, I want to highlight that because 
because I think sometimes there's this confusion about why is censoring such a problem. And in epidemiology, we're so concerned with getting the right measures of our exposure and our outcome in particular. And censoring interferes with our ability to measure the outcomes properly. And I think that that's such an important distinction between censoring as a problem. Why is censoring a problem? Because it interferes with that ability to measure the outcome that you're interested in measuring. So it gets to some tricky issues, though, when you think through whether or not an event is a competing risk or it's a a censoring event. Because, and again, I think we talked about this when we talked with Brian, but in some of our early studies that we did on our HIV populations, we were looking at the effects of HIV treatment. And it's observational data. We're looking at patients within a clinic getting HIV treatment A versus treatment B. And the question becomes, if a person drops out of care, can we treat that as a censoring event? Because we know longer observe them. It seems to me if you just censor them and you put them in one of these models, Cox proportional hazards model or life table type approaches, you are effectively saying that they're going to continue on HIV treatment and we just can't observe their outcome. But, and it's not true now, but when we first started doing this work, if you dropped out of care from one of these programs, it was very unlikely you were ever going to be able to access care somewhere else. And therefore, you actually were not the same as those who stayed in treatment. And so you could think of that as potentially being a competing event and not a censoring event. So I, it's not always a very simple thing to just say, I no longer observe you. And the reason for that isn't death. Therefore, it's not a competing risk. Yeah. So this was a question I had for you about the chapter. I guess we're skipping ahead a little bit, but about this assumption that censoring is independent. And, you know, this is one of these assumptions that we always say, you know, we talk about it when in the list of assumptions from, from these types of models. And in the real world, do you think censoring is ever truly independent? Well, ever. I mean, yes. I mean, course. I don't mean ever. Yes, there are contexts in which yes, but is it is it common? I suspect there is a fair bit of right censoring in a lot of studies that is just random and has nothing to do with the timing of the event, but I suspect that there are probably also a reasonable number of people depending on the condition that we're interested in in which the timing of the event is related to the censoring. So, yeah, I don't know. I just find that it's one of these assumptions where people say, oh, censoring is independent. And I would like people to be able to prove or demonstrate in some way quantitatively. And, you know, that's that's really challenging to do that because I just I'm a skeptic that censoring is ever or in most cases, you know, independent. Fair enough. All right. So the next type of censoring is truncation. So left truncation. So this is when the event you're interested in or an event occurs before the origin of your study. So before time zero. So, you know, an event has occurred, but before a time point in which you are, are starting your study. So uh, the best clear example of this, I think, is from the, the perinatal epi folk, which is that somebody experiences a spontaneous abortion or a miscarriage or something before 20 weeks. You don't know when exactly that occurred or before a live birth. You know that it occurred before some time point, but you don't know exactly when it occurred. So I think the issues related to left truncation, in my experience, the best folks to learn about this from has been in perinatal epi, even though that's not really my area of interest. Can you give me an example? What would be a question where that would be relevant? Are you studying the effect of a medication on some birth-related outcome? Yeah. So small for gestational age or something, or birth weight, low birth weight or something like that. And you're saying the left truncation comes in because you don't ever identify those pregnancies because you start a follow-up time, say, at birth? 
Exactly. You are not including those uh, individuals that were lost prior to some point in time, which is, let's say, your time zero birth for birth weight. And so that creates a left truncation problem because, in effect, they're missing from the data set that you wish you could have if you had all of them. So the third type of censoring that's discussed in the chapter is interval censoring, which is when the event occurs during a defined interval, but it's not clear exactly when the event has occurred. Um, so this is another type of censoring that I think we entirely do not pay enough attention to in our analyses. At least right censoring is frequently discussed. Left truncation is sometimes discussed. Interval censoring is rarely discussed. Yeah, I agree with you on this. I don't know how much it matters. Yeah. I think part of the reason we don't pay enough attention to it is, so if the interval is long, then it definitely could matter, right? Because if the interval is a period of, let's say, five years, or let's say 10 years, and we know that we're talking about a cancer or something like that, the older you get, the risk goes up. And therefore, the later you are in the interval, the higher the probability of the event would be, then I can see a clear case where interval censoring could be problematic. But if we're talking about the period of, say, six months, or even a year, there could be some problems with simply attributing the event to, say, the midpoint between the last time you observed them and the next time you observed the event. But is it going to be that much? I don't know. But I, I suspect it's probably in a lot of cases not a big deal. Yeah, I would say it's, I agree with you in the instance you described where there's a relatively short interval. I guess maybe you could run into problems where the outcome is very highly prevalent. I and mean, so it's occurring really rapidly, let's say. Why would that matter? I mean, it's occurring really rapidly, but as long as it's occurring at a, a constant rate, the fact that I only observe it, say, a year later, if I assign the midpoint to the period in between, I'm effectively saying it's evenly distributed over that period, and I'm just going to attribute it all to the midpoint, because that's when it's happening on average. Yeah, so I guess the context really matters. In, this, you know, in my head, I have this example of there's a radiation exposure or something, and some bad outcome is happening relatively quickly after that exposure and it kind of spikes up and then some people trickle down. So so you're saying on average, you know, it kind of levels out. And in my head, that context is important, that the timing really is important relative to the exposure. So what you're saying there is it's not a constant rate of event. Correct. And Correct. so, yeah, then I would absolutely agree, right? If, if there is a, like you say, a radiation event and the, let's say the outcomes, whatever they are, occur at a very high rate within the first year and you're only observing people after... 10 years. And so therefore you sign all events to uh, five years instead of the fact that they should, then yeah, I, I would certainly agree you're going to have a problem there. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, all sorts of really neat examples that I've seen lately. I'm not sure what the technical title of the domain is, but something like disaster epidemiology, where they study, you know, extreme weather events or extreme heat events, you know, some of the research that came out after Hurricane Katrina or some extreme ice storms. I think that these are contexts in which you do maybe have to be careful about interval censoring if there's an exposure event that could lead to the rate of the outcome occurring differently in exposed and unexposed people, depending on your exposure burden. So that's interval censoring. So that's interval censoring. Okay, so then the chapter moves on to talk about the different ways that we approach getting estimates of the function that we're going to use to describe the rate of, of events over time. And there are various different approaches that they go through, like the Kaplan-Meier estimators, the different hazard models. So it splits the modeling approaches into parametric analyses where you're estimating something like a probability density function or a survival function 
the hazard function, or the cumulative hazard. So those are kind of the four approaches that they talk about under the heading of parametric analyses. And all of those different approaches with different caveats attached to them can be used to characterize the distribution of time, capital T, in the, the analyses. So that's the under the, the heading of parametric analyses. And then they move into these non-parametric approaches, such as Kaplan-Meier and life tables, which can be used to estimate survival times, things like median survival or restricted mean survival approaches. So, so I like the distinction that they make. I think they lay it out very clearly. You know, you really, if you're using these approaches, you have to sit with the formulas and understand each of the various components of them, which you can't really talk about you know, in, in a podcast episode. But the detail detail is there and I think is important for folks that are trying to use these types of models. Yeah, I would agree. So a lot of these modeling-based approaches get us to the concept of hazard and hazard functions. Do you think of the estimates that you get from a model in which you are either implicitly or explicitly assuming there is an underlying hazard function, and I'll, we should define what a hazard function is, I'll do that in a second, but that those models effectively are giving you the equivalent of an incident rate ratio, or do you think of that like the hazard ratio that you get out of say a Cox model is a different entity from an incident rate ratio. So I struggle a lot with hazards. Honestly, I find them really challenging to interpret. In most instances, I interpret a hazard as a rate ratio, an incidence yeah, rate ratio in, well. in the most instances, but I don't use hazards a lot in my work or hazard ratios, I should say. You know, I, I really like, again, Miguel Hernan's paper on hazards of hazard ratio. I think it's like a must read kind of important paper paper for everyone. And so I, I'm not a huge fan of hazard ratios, honestly. So we should talk about that. Before I do, let me just say the way they define this. They say the hazard is a conditional probability of experiencing the event within the next change of time, delta time units at time T, given the event has not yet occurred. So it's effectively, it's a probability of experiencing the event over a short period of time, conditional on not having experienced the event up to that time point. Then they say dividing this probability by delta, whatever change in unit of time you're using, converts it into a rate with time as the denominator. Finally, the hazard is defined by considering the limiting value of this rate as the delta interval gets increasingly small. In other words, if you make that delta effectively zero, like approaching zero, that is like the instantaneous rate. What do you do with that? I don't know. So that's, you know, if you were to say to me, Haley, define the hazard, I would say it's the instantaneous rate. You know, that's kind of the, the way that everyone defines it. I conceptually struggle with that so much that you asked me earlier about risks and rates, and then way down, I would put hazard ratios or hazard rates because I, I can't understand them. My simple brain can't get there. Yeah, fair enough. I probably would say my simple brain can't get there either. But what I do like about the concept is that I have to imagine, even if I'm in the context of a hazard ratio where beauty of the, let's say the Cox model is that it effectively says there is a hazard function, but I don't have to estimate it. I don't have to make any assumptions about what it looks like. Everything is just a, a multiple of that hazard function based on the covariates. So it gets you out of a lot of work that you might have to do otherwise. But it just sort of forces me into remembering that there is a function that describes the rate of the events over time. Yeah. That it's not just a constant rate of events. There is some function in which the rate of events may be increasing or decreasing over time. And as we said earlier, that does actually matter. As an individual, it matters to me to know that my risk may double if I'm exposed to something versus not exposed to it for some outcome. But that doubling is really just an average 
over a period of time and my risk may be tripled it in some points and barely increased in in other time points so it, it seems to me it's it's actually important to keep that in mind that that summary measure you're getting of that hazard ratio is really an averaging of effects over time. So I think that another advantage of Cox personal hazard model where you're getting hazard ratios out of it is this explicit focus on censoring as an important part of your statistical modeling that is often overlooked in other types of modeling approaches where you're just, you know, using a logistic model and and who has the outcome and who doesn't. I appreciate about the Cox model that there is this focus on, you know, what is the time frame on on which you're you're measuring something. So I think that that's another advantage that Cox modeling has compared to, to some other modeling approaches that we often use to read it into the record here. So they talk about Kaplan-Meier estimator, which is a very simple approach to estimating these functions over time by effectively estimating the probabilities in intervals between when events are occurring. And then you can multiply those to those conditional probabilities together and get a survival function that way. But then they talk about Cox model, the proportional hazards model, which is a brilliant in some ways, if you believe you can meet the assumptions, a model that says effectively that the linear function that describes the effect of a set of covariates on the hazard just multiplies it. So if you imagine some baseline hazard function for an unexposed population, then what the exposure does is it just multiplies the the hazard by a constant factor. So the shape can be whatever it is. And at every point, you would just multiply it by a factor. And if that is a plausible assumption, then you don't ever have to think about what the hazard function looks like. So it's a very convenient model. And that's, I think, why we use it so much in epidemiology. There are other approaches where you could actually make some assumptions about the shape of the hazard function. So exponential models, Weibull models, gamma models, log normals, Gompertz, etc. And I think we probably underutilize these because we don't want to have to think about what the hazard function looks like. And I think that's probably not the best thing that we do, but fine. But two last things that I want to talk about. One is this assumption that goes into the, the Cox model that they talk about, the proportional hazard model. They say, intuitively, proportional hazards corresponds to there being no effect measure modification of the covariate effect by time on the hazard ratio scale. So like I just said, we don't know what the function is, but this covariate just multiplies it by a consistent value over time. Probably not a very realistic assumption, but the question is, you know, are you off by much that it matters or not? Then they say it's often the case that the proportional hazards is viewed as an assumption, that the effect is constant over time, and it's just a multiplier for a particular covariate. They say, here, we do not take this position. Instead, we view proportional hazards as a modeling choice that is made in much the same way that an analyst may choose to represent the effect of a covariate in a linear regression solely using its main effects without any interactions. In other words, you know that interactions exist, but we choose for simplicity to summarize that entire effect varying over a set of covariates by its average. Do you buy that? Yeah, I think it's brilliant, actually. I think I think moving away from calling it an assumption is a lightning bolt moment for me or like a me too. a really important realization from this chapter that we shouldn't call it an assumption. It's different than, you know, the independent censoring assumptions or, or whatever other assumptions we're going to make. It is a modeling choice that you either include an interaction term or not with time. I guess there's other approaches you could use stratifying, etc. But this is, I think, a really important takeaway message from this this chapter, this section of the chapter. 
I agree with you. I had never thought about it in this way, and I think it's reasonable. Now, like with the the decision to not include an interaction term, I think we have to be aware of the decision that we made and the potential implications. Of course. That we are effectively summarizing the entire effect with its weighted average, weighted by you know the distribution of that effect over time, and that it is possible that actually there's a large effect in some time points and small yeah. effect in others, and that is actually something that we probably do want to know. But we do make modeling choices for reasons of parsimony and simplicity and interpretability. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. We just have to be careful with it. You just have to be explicit about your your choice to do it or to, to justify it one way or the other. I really dislike when I'm in a presentation and they say, like, we check the proportionality assumption and okay, moving on. Or, you know, it was verified or, or something like that. You know, it's, it's just one of these hand-waving things that epidemiologists do, uh, like a checkbox. Like, oh, I did it. Okay, I'm moving on now. When that's not really the case. I think in most instances, you can actually verify it empirically and you should present either data or Schoenfeld residuals or, or one of the graphical approaches like that to actually demonstrate to your audience why it's verified or not, or be explicit that you, you think it's averaging out over time. And, and that's, that's okay. Yeah, and I think my preference is always for more granularity in our understanding. But the reality is we rarely have the data to get extremely granular in what effects are doing over time. And I do always have to acknowledge, I'm not sure that people could actually absorb information on the effect of an exposure on an outcome in, you know, say in yearly increments and what that would actually mean and how it would change your decision making. So probably it's, it's reasonable and, and a good thing to do. So they do then acknowledge the point that you made earlier. They say recent work has questioned the interpretability of a hazard ratio or an incidence rate ratio as a measure of association, specifically as to whether it can be viewed as having a causal interpretation. You're referring to the work by Miguel Hernan on the hazard of hazard ratios. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, so that paper, again, was an important formative paper when I was training about understanding that the survival is conditional. It's a a conditional estimate. That is, you have to survive up to the the start of that risk set that you're you're counting in order to be eligible to be included in that risk set. So it has this, what he calls a built-in selection bias associated with it because of this conditional uh, requirement. And so I think that that is really often overlooked, except in in the epi spheres of people that, you know, read these types of papers. And it can have really important implications for how you interpret your your hazard ratio estimate. And I would agree. And it becomes particularly problematic when people try to break up the person time into periods of time after the let's say the the zero time. And when you do that, when you try to say this is the effect of the exposure on the outcome in years two to five after the exposure, you are now conditioning on survival up to year two to be able to be in that risk set. And so it isn't, isn't clear what that actually would be estimating. So I think it's really important work that we need to to think more about. So then they say the Cox model is ubiquitous in clinical and public health research. In The reason for it is due in large part to the appeal of not having to specify the baseline hazard if estimation proceeds using the parcel likelihood. Another reason is that the hazard ratio is interpretable as an incident rate ratio or short-term risk ratio or loosely a relative risk. And I... I like that because it isn't saying that it is exactly those things, but it's saying it's reasonable to interpret the hazard ratio as an incident rate ratio or a short-term risk ratio. And I appreciate them saying that. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's helpful because these are the kind of terminology slippages that we see across different you know, written works, and it's helpful that they're acknowledging that in a formal context that it, it's okay to do this under you know short term windows, I guess. Yep. Okay, last thing they talk about is the idea of semi-competing risk. And I'm hoping that you can explain to me what a semi-competing risk is, because I I struggled with this part. This was not a concept I was familiar with. And going through it, I I couldn't wrap my head around it. So I'm curious if you had more insight than I have. So I think semi-competing risks, I think competing risks are not discussed enough. Semi-competing risks are like really rarely discussed, but yet again, a topic that I think occurs more frequently than we think about. And so a a semi-competing risk event is different than a competing risk because in a competing risk, only one outcome is possible. So you are precluded from having the outcome of interest in your study because you've had this competing event. A semi-competing risk is when you can have an observation of two different types of outcome events in at least some segment of the population. So I guess a semi-competing risk could be something like having cancer and subsequently having a heart attack. And so in some segment of the population, you have those two events are semi-competing events rather than a competing risk analysis where you have dying as your competing risk, then you cannot go on to have a a heart attack at a a later time point. So how is the heart attack competing? A a non-fatal heart attack. How is that in some way a competing event? Because I can still have the cancer, right? So if forget which one I said comes first, but I, I believe that the first event, again, I'm not an expert on this, but I think the first event changes your probability of the second event occurring. So a let's say having a cancer changes my probability of having a heart attack? Yes. Ah. But yes, I think it's because let's say you have cancer and you have radiation or, or chemotherapy or, or some kind of treatment, which is cardiotoxic, and, and that might influence your risk of, of having a heart attack at a later, at a later point. Okay, that's... That, that makes sense. So they say settings where primary interest lies with some non-terminal event. So a heart attack, yeah. For which the occurrence is subject to a terminal event are referred to as semi-competing risks. I have a hard time parsing that statement. So there's this figure 22-2 graphic in figure 22-2 panel A. You have your initial state and then they're representing two different causes of death. You can obviously, I guess in this example, only die from cause one or cause two of death. And then for semi-competing risks, you have your initial state for some people that proceeds to a non-terminal event, so a non-fatal event, and later you're eligible to have the terminal event. Whereas for some other people in the population, they do not experience that non-terminal event. They just skip right over and experience whatever the terminal event is in, in this context. So that's, I guess, the difference is whether you're you're having your initial state and you're moving on to a terminal event, or whether you're having your initial state, you experience a non-terminal event first and then go on to experience the terminal event. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to struggle with that one. I mean, so they say a critical feature of semi-competing risk data is that one will observe the timing of both events on at least some study participants. That's what you said. This is in contrast to competing risks where one can only observe the timing of at most one event. A consequence of being able to observe both events on individual study units is that the data provide at least partial information on the dependence between the non-terminal and terminal events. So that's absolutely getting at what you said. I just 
I, I struggled to really figure out how I would identify a, a semi-competing event and then even bigger problem with knowing what I would do about it. So the what you do about it, I think, is we need a whole other episode on semi-competing events potentially and, and recruit somebody who actually understands this better than us. But a non-terminal event, I think in different words, isn't this a mediator? You know, something that we could view as subsequent to your exposure, but before the outcome that you're interested in? Isn't that what's being represented in this figure here? So let's use cancer as, as an example. You have cancer and you have some kind of treatment that leads you to have heart failure and heart failure eventually might lead to death. Okay, so that could be the the non-terminal event is the heart failure and the terminal event is death. Whereas some other individuals who have this cancer treatment just go from cancer treatment and unfortunately they don't survive their cancer. So they just just end up with the, the terminal event there. So that would be two different instances representing the two different pathways and panel B of that figure. I'll trust you. I'm going to continue to struggle with that one. And as you say, we're going to need a whole other podcast to really, truly digest that one. But let just make people aware that it's worth going through that part of the chapter to be you know, aware that there is this other kind of competing event that we don't talk much about. Yeah, and I think that's where the, the level of detail in this chapter is is really represented. Like this is, there must be folks in epidemiology that are very concerned about semi-competing events based on the context that they research. That is not you or yeah. I, and that's why we're struggling here. But if you are interested in that, this is the reference point to go to. Agreed. So it's hard to believe that we are at time. You know, Matt and I can can talk about these topics for, for a very long sure time, can. but we do have to we cut it off at some point so thank you for for joining us for this episode it was great chatting with you and and helping matt thanks for helping me understand these topics a little bit better for those of you who are not members of the society for epidemiologic research i strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting it also gets you access to the scr library which has some great learning materials seminars and activities you can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one as well. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the host and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.